Good afternoon, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Wednesday, April 19th. I'm Julie Hersey with these stories in state and local news. Rogue dog packs in Petersburg used to be a problem, but for 15 years, the nonprofit Petersburg Humane Association has cared for the town's stray dogs and cats. And for the last decade, the organization has relied on a flock of non-native birds to help them do their work. Rachel Cassandra joined director Mary Clements to witness this year's spring migration. I had to scrape the windows this morning. It's a little icy. It's 6 a.m. and we're in Mary Clemens' silver station wagon, driving to the pickup spot. Some flockers like to do it at night, come in at, you know, the dark of night and do it the night before. I'd just soon do it in the morning. That guy looks a little hurt. Yeah, he's a little droopy. (laughs) The bird's Latin name is Phenocopterus ruber. And if you found them in the wild, they might sound like this. But these ones are made of plastic. Think classic pink flamingo lawn ornaments popular in 1960s Florida. Residents pay $10 for a flock of about 10 flamingos to visit a yard for the day, surprising friends or family with the avine visitors. Right now, Clemens is picking them up to deliver them to their next destination. When we're back in her car, she tells me about the flocks. There's two that are active right now, and we do have a partial third one for flamingos that get damaged. What happened last year once was Gene Smith went to go pick up a flock and it was gone. So we used the third flock to flock that a person that day. They finally appeared out the road and somebody brought them back in. But uh, When the flamingos come out, you know spring is here. <laughs> That's board member Laura Wong-Rose. She says 15 years ago, Petersburg streets felt very different. Apparently. We used to have packs of dogs roaming around town terrorizing children and a pretty large feral cat community. The dogs were pooping all over downtown streets, attacking leashed dogs and hunting deer, giving chase until the deer died from exhaustion or fled into the water and drowned. Apparently it was kind of dangerous to go outside sometimes. So a group of residents banded together to tackle the issue head on forming the Petersburg Humane Association. Wong Rose says the biggest way that the association helps with stray animals is through prevention. We do that through offering spay-neutership scholarships. So for folks that are have pets, lower income, that need assistance in spaying or neutering their pet, the scholarships are available, and most of our fundraising and outreach goes towards that program right now. Spaying or neutering a pet is not cheap, and Wong Rose says that COVID pushed up the price of the operations. And so average spay or neuter can run anywhere, you know, in the 400 up to $1,200 range. Petersburg Humane Association is independent, meaning it's not connected with any other humane associations. So they rely on two annual fundraisers to raise money. Besides flocking flamingos, they publish a yearly calendar with photos of Petersburg's pets. And Petersburg loves its pets. Local dog owners have, on average, three dogs per household, according to Wong Rose. A lot of dogs in town, and and the dog population is increasing, it seems. The association maintains a dog park near the beach with volunteer help. And they run a no-kill shelter. Volunteers help care for puppies and kittens, 
and the organization keeps a list of families willing to foster animals temporarily. Yeah. So this is the place we're gonna. I'm gonna turn around up here. Clemens and I pull up in her car to the house where the flamingos will loiter all day. We close the car doors silently so we don't ruin the surprise. I like to be kind of quiet. It's a lawn with a chain link fence around it on Nordic Avenue, a main street in Petersburg. This is a perfect yard because every place I push them down, they they're going in. So sometimes it's not so easy to find places to to stick them. But this is a, it's working out just great. The two flamingo flocks will migrate around Petersburg through the end of April, and then they'll disappear as suddenly as they appeared. Signaling spring is really here. In Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Tourists are lured to the Kenai Peninsula every summer by the promise of big catches from the decks of saltwater fishing boats. But as regulations on halibut and king salmon fishing have ramped up in the last decade, charter guides have branched out into another species, rockfish. And this year, the Alaska Department of Fishing Game is limiting rockfish harvest by emergency order to make sure the population doesn't plummet to a point of no return. Sabine Pooks has more in Kenai. Mike Boos with the department's Division of Sportfish says the new bag limits for rockfish announced Thursday are preventative. Things are okay. We're just on uh, an increasing harvest trend that is likely to lead to unsustainable levels. He traces that trend back in part to 2014, when the council that manages fishing in Alaska's federal waters passed a catch-sharing plan to allocate halibut harvest between commercial and sport fisheries. He says right away, charters started going more for rockfish. Meanwhile, the department has tightened regulations on king salmon fishing too, including closures and decreased bag limits. That's as king salmon across Alaska continue to suffer. Again, he says those restrictions have pushed saltwater charters to broaden their scope. Within the day, they're spreading their effort among species. Ray DeBartolabin owns Long Live the King's Lodge in Soldatna. He also has a saltwater boat out of Homer and will start taking clients out for the season later this month. He's been fishing since the 1980s when he says it was possible to get a 200-pound halibut. He says he no longer targets the clientele that expects that sort of fishing. That clientele is gone for me, so I've really just uh, spent money on marketing and, and just got new clients that they pull up a halibut that's 25, 30 pounds in there. First thing they say is, wow. He says there's still days when he'll take clients out to fish for halibut alone, but he started focusing more on trips for halibut and rockfish over the last seven years. Rockfish are found further offshore, as far as the Chugach Islands in Cook Inlet, on the other side of Kachemak Bay State Park. Brian Ritchie is a charter operator out of Homer and a vice president of the Homer Charter Association. That is a long way for a charter vessel to travel, and it does increase fuel costs, uh, but it's something that businesses here have shown they're willing to um, take on, and it's something that we've, we've certainly adapted to. He says Homer area fishermen have been eyeing rockfish abundance for a few years now. Recently, the total rockfish harvest in Cook Inlet saltwater skyrocketed to over 50,000 fish a year, according to Fish and Game. Booz says the species is susceptible to overharvest. They don't migrate much like salmon do. They stick to the spots they like, which makes them easier to catch. It's because we know right where they're going to be every day. Rockfish are also slow to mature, and they live a long time. 
Boo says that makes it hard for them to bounce back, which has happened to rockfish fisheries in the lower 48. He says that's another reason to be conservative with the restrictions. The new bag limits are three a day in Cook Inlet, down from five, and three in the Gulf Coast area, down from four. Richie says fishermen in Cook Inlet are getting used to diversifying as regulations continue to shift. Still, he says it can be hard to adjust. That kind of uncertainty, when it's your business and it's your job, um, it, it can be stressful. And I think that it is, it's been stressful the past two years, especially for Homer area businesses and operators. DeBarta Laban says another challenge for charters has been increased gas prices. Those prices last summer sometimes doubled the cost of fueling up for charters. While he's worried about the changes, he says he's optimistic that halibut and salmon are rebounding. And he says he thinks there's been a mentality shift. I think the new mentality of, of fishermen, they just want to go fishing and have a good time. I've had to change my attitude on, on how much fish do I need, how much fish do I want. So I, and I, I kind of try to pass that on to my customers, you know, the attitude of we're going to go out and we're going to have fun and we're going to catch some fish and we're going to go eat it. He says clients want the experience of going out and catching fish, no matter the species. In Kenai, I'm Sabine Pooks. Mercury is in the food chain, and it's particularly prevalent in seafood. And while the amount of mercury found in Alaskan seafood remains far below dangerous levels, a pair of researchers want to keep an eye on it long term. The best way to do this, they found, is not by testing fish coming over the docks, by testing human hair. They're in Sitka to report the findings of a pilot study begun five years ago. Robert Woolsey has this report from Sitka. Todd O'Hara is a veterinarian, but don't bring him your cat to be spayed. I'm a veterinarian who has a Ph.D. in toxicology. I've never had any desire to be a clinical veterinarian. Uh, I've applied my veterinary degree uh, to wildlife and fish research in toxicology and environmental agents of disease. O'Hara is a researcher with Texas A&M and the University of Alaska Fairbanks. A lot of pathologists who study human disease are veterinarians, which is not surprising when you consider how closely humans and animals are linked on this planet. Maggie Castellini, however, is not a veterinarian. Is it Maggie's just... a marine mammal physiologist, by the way. I yes. don't think okay. she mentioned that. <laughs> no. She's actually trained in marine mammal physiology. That's correct. Which greatly applies to what we do. We'll come back in a moment to why a marine mammal physiologist is important to research about mercury in seafood. Castellini, until last summer, was with the UAF College of Natural Sciences and Mathematics, working in the vet department. In 2018, she and O'Hara won funding from the National Institute of Health to study the accumulation of mercury in the marine food web. The pair had often been to Sitka for the annual symposium on humpback whales called Whale Fest, and the community, they realized, provided a diverse pool of people who live closely with the marine environment. They launched a pilot study hosted by the Sitka Tribe of Alaska and began to collect samples not of the sea creatures consumed by Sitkins, but of human hair, which can reveal a lot about the head it's growing out of. Hair is just a really easy tissue to be able to work with. It's a very good indicator of mercury in the rest of the body. It's obviously very easy to sample. You don't have to, you know, stick a needle in somebody or anything like that. And um, we would just take a very small, maybe about the width of a pencil from the very back of mm-hmm. a person's scalp um, and just cut it right close to the scalp. And that's all you need to do. It's It doesn't hurt. And you can't even tell that the hair has 
has been cut away. So it's uh, it's really nice to be able to do effective monitoring with such an easy collection and, and also something that's pretty easy to analyze as well after the fact. The pilot study tested mercury levels in the hair of 70 subjects, both in Sitka and in another smaller community in southeast Alaska. The objective was to be as broad-based as possible rather than focus on any specific ethnic group or demographic. Really broad-based. One of the things we like is when vegans and vegetarians participate in the study because that shows us sort of a control non-meat consuming person so we had a vegan here the upshot of the study is that the tested population showed mercury levels far below the cutoff for the world health organization o'hara says most people came in at around one part per million of mercury a couple of people were at five parts per million the who cutoff is 10 parts per million this is good news for alaskans who live by and from the sea but it's not the full story Mercury accumulates in different species at different rates. O'Hara and Castellini want to expand mercury monitoring to better specify any risk. For a long time, the types of advisories that would be sent out, and there still are in some parts of the country, basically treat all fish as equal, right? You know, don't eat more than this many meals of fish a week if you're a woman who's a Mm-hmm. childbearing age. But that's not at all true with mercury. Some species of fish have vanishingly small amounts of mercury because of their lifestyle, whereas others, you know, especially the bigger ones, can have fairly high. The gape, right. the size of the mouth, will dictate trophic level in a lot of fish. The bigger the fish, the larger fish they can consume, and those tend to be at a higher position in the food web. And higher still are marine mammals. Alaska, the pair agree, has a pretty good advisory system for fish, but not for the animals that eat those fish and then are consumed by people, primarily Alaska natives. So we would like to include marine mammals in our study to give people here in southeast Alaska better representation of their diet. Some places are famously contaminated with mercury. San Francisco Bay with Gold Rush-era mining residue Minamata Bay in Japan with industrial mercury at such high concentrations that the resulting neurological damage is called Minamata disease. Alaska's mercury is less likely to be caused by human activity. There's naturally occurring cinnabar, for example, and volcanoes. O'Hara and Castellini hope that their pilot study with the National Institute of Health will take off into more permanent monitoring of mercury in coastal Alaska. They see monitoring as an incentive to a healthy diet rather than a deterrent. If that's all people hear about, then they start to be afraid to eat good, healthy foods. And so it's really nice to be able to get a broad study where we can look at at communities and say, you might eat a lot of fish, but your mercury concentrations in general are still not that high. And it's, it's a good reassurance. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. That concludes the news portion of Midday Magazine for today, Wednesday, April 19th. I'm Julie Hersey. And up next, we'll have a look at the marine and local weather forecast.